The Ukrainian armed forces have launched a counter-offensive against the Russian-occupied south of the country. Its aim is not to recapture territories immediately, but to disrupt Russia's military logistics and make Russia's hold there untenable. You're listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine. This is our weekly digest covering events in and around Ukraine between 29th of August until 4th of September. Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I am philosopher and journalist, chief editor of Ukraine World, and my co-host is Tetyana Harkova, who is in charge of international outreach at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We spend a majority of your donations to help Ukrainian defenders and people affected by this war. Patreon.com slash ukraineworld. So, Tanya, let us analyze the key events in and around Ukraine during the past week. And, of course, the key uh, topic is this. Uh, announced counteroffensive in the south and the problem is that we don't m- know much about it yes exactly the maybe the major operation of the ukrainian arms, arms forces since many months already but uh, ukrainian media they keep silence apart from this announcement which came on monday 29th of august so it was announced officially that ukraine counterattacks a lot of reactions in the social media, a lot of reactions uh, between journalists, but mostly no information coming from the Ukrainian uh, part. And uh, all the analysis we are trying to get is com- comes from uh, from foreign sources and uh, for sure from Russia propaganda, which obviously state that there that was a failure. Um, Ukrainian officials are not telling us much about what is going on. And frankly, we don't have a lot of information from the ground. I mean, maybe there were kind of instructions for soldiers present on the ground. Uh, At least we cannot say that we have witnesses, important witnesses from the ground. So we are discussing that uh, just theoretically without evidence of what's going on. But we we pay a lot of attention to what's what's analyzed in in foreign media, by foreign, um, um, in foreign analysis. For example, um, Institute of Study of War is delivering its analysis daily, some experts as well. What we understand is that we also can make some conclusions observing how Russia reacts, how Russian propaganda reacts to what is going on. And when they cry quite loudly that this was a failure and that they repeat it 10 times, we can conclude that something is going maybe in good direction. But what we can say maybe for sure is that the aim of this counteroffensive is not to liberate Kherson in two days, in three days. It's about, it's much more complicated. It's a game which is, uh, has an objective to destroy Russian logistics, destroy Russian troops, destroy Russian stocks, and then maybe to advance uh, later. 
So, and a lot of experts uh, um, are trying to highlight that the, the most importantly, um, this operation will take some time. And so we cannot judge on the success or failure right now. And uh, this is a continuation of uh, what we have been already saying uh, since a few weeks, that Ukrainians launched uh, artillery strike with the far, far range uh, artillery, uh, destroying Russian logistics, destroying Russian military uh, depots, destroying the ammunitions. And uh, uh, I have the impression that this announced counteroffensive is just a more massive continuation of that. So it's not a counteroffensive when we see the, like we see the uh, in in the war movies when there are lots of soldiers just running with their with their arti- with their uh, Kalashnikovs with their guns, uh, with screaming hooray and uh, and you know entering the the trenches of the. Of the opponent, uh, the key goal is indeed to cut uh, Russians from supplies, uh, from uh, their ammunition supplies, from the transportation supplies, and push them to retreat. Uh, so make them make it uh, Russian defense unbearable, untenable, and push them uh, at one moment to retreat. And the Russians understand this very very well, and therefore one of the news, the past news, is that. They have sent a new kind of a reinforcement to its army, the so-called Third uh, Army Corpus. Uh, and uh, there is still, I think it's about 10,000 people or maybe less. And uh, there is still a discussion in Ukraine where they will uh, they will put this uh, Third Army Corpus either to the east or to the south. Yeah, and maybe they will put part of it in the east and part of it in the south where these troops will be deployed, we still don't know. But uh, at the same time, what we do know is that all four bridges in the region, in the south, I mean, Antonievsky Bridge, two, the two, two bridges called Antonievsky, and then in Kachovka and then Darivsky, all of them are severely damaged. If I'm not mistaken, they go there were images of Kachovsky Bridge, which is completely, uh, completely ruined. So it means that even if they send a lot of troops on the uh, right bank of Dnieper, on the left bank of river, they will not be able to cross the river. And uh, the same story for ammunition and for for artillery. And in a way, uh, according to estimations we have now, uh, 20,000 Russian soldiers are uh, on the right bank of Dnipro. It means that uh, they are... Um, not literally encircled, but they are surrounded on one in, on one hand they are surrounded by Ukrainian troops which are shelling them severely, and on the other hand they have uh, Dnipro, and they cannot easily cross it. They cannot withdraw easily because they will need boats. We don't know exactly how can could be done. So they are in a kind of a very uh, difficult position, and but the number is big, so twenty thousand according to estimations. At the same time, they cannot uh, easily receive any kind of uh, supply, any kind of reinforcement, any kind of people, soldiers, or or artillery coming from the left bank. So uh, all that is, is quite, it seems to be quite a complicated story for Russian army. And uh, another, com- another part of this complicated story is that uh, they really are on the territories which are in which those people who stayed 
quite probably they are still very hostile to the Russians. And at least that's what we get from the Ukrainian sources, uh, is that uh, Russians are complaining that their positions are always communicated by the locals to uh, to the Ukrainian army. And therefore they, they are really an, kind of an easy target for, for Ukrainian army, which is also very important. The, the important thing is the whether citizens, the local citizens who stay, of course we understand that a lot of them have left the region, uh, whether these local citizens are who, whom they are supporting actually. Russians of course claim that they are supporting themselves because uh, they want Russians as liberators because there is a tiny so-called Nazi regime in Kyiv which is not supported by anybody. We know that this is a complete lie. But uh, the, the real question is... Uh, whether there is a resistance movement, a partisan movement on these occupied territories. Again, in the in Ukrainian information space, we see a lot of kind of a rumors that there is a partisan movement in Kherson, in Melitopol, and in uh, in some other uh, some other occupied cities uh, in the south. Well, uh, we 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 understand that there are really some some things going on. There are explosions in these cities, etc. Whether it's done by Ukrainian army or really by the by these resistance movements, that's also a very interesting question. Yes, indeed. This, during this week, the, there was a quite interesting publication of a testimony of a journalist from Kherson who stayed in the city until maybe previous week. So he spent all these months inside Kherson and he told quite a number of interesting stories about he participated in this partisan network. He was hiding all this time uh, and he explains how they were communicating information to Ukrainian security service and to Ukrainian military and they got in contact and they were obviously risking their lives to do so. But they he personally, he met managed to uh, to organize quite a number of a big number of uh, explosions and uh, other as events unpleasant events for Russians inside so he left Kherson when it became too dangerous for him to to be to be there and he explained how to, he managed he created they uh, they created an artificial identity for him i mean it means uh, different telephone different documents so they just created a personality which never existed for him to present his id card and all these documents and all these uh, um, mobile phone for example he was even searching in the internet Things which were linked to his in, his artificial identity. For example, he was presenting himself as a uh, as a professional in finance, if I'm not mistaken. So he was uh, he was even uh, creating a separate uh, Google search, you know, for them to verify that and to be sure that this this guy is just uh, somebody like that. So and he uh, succeeded to escape. And he is now safe in Ukraine, and he uh, he was interviewed by the Ukrainian Ukrainian uh, media, and he explained that there is a quite a big network of people who are still inside and who are quite active and who are helping uh, Ukrainian military and Ukrainian security service. Yes, let's hope this is uh, this is really a powerful network. Another important thing is that we have seen recently, a few days ago, that uh, again Bayraktars appeared in the Ukrainian information space uh, and uh, 
uh, not just by rumors, but the uh, Ukrainian chief commander Valery Zaluzhny mentioned that Bayraktars have destroyed, I think, yesterday uh, a few important targets. And this this is important because that means that uh, the Russian air defense systems, which was quite effective uh, against Bayraktars, meaning the uh, these drones, these Tur- Turkey Turkey uh, produced drones, they were quite e- efficient, and Ukraine was not communicating very much uh, recently about the strikes of the Bayraktars. But at the same time, Ukrainians have started using these anti-air defense missiles. I think they're c- called Harm, right? Mm-hmm. A couple of weeks ago, already they destroyed a number of it. So yeah, so it seems that uh, this uh, Russian air defense is already in the south is already not that strong. Another uh, thing which is also important is that there is uh, also some information. There was a publication in Insider, I think, about the fact that uh, well, Russians do not have so much uh, weapons which are which are left and. Uh, uh, a big percentage of the of the tanks of the artillery are actually not uh, not really good for use on the front line because we understand that you cannot just shell endlessly with your artillery at some point they it will be it will be over and this equipment will be just uh, just unable to function so there is a there is a question about the russian real uh, capacity to continue this war right so what else what else what, but say? at the same time um what we see that yes according to this analysis russians still have resources until the end of this year in terms of artillery and in terms of tanks but not no more than that but at the same time look they during this week putin orders his armed forces to conquer donbass i mean the donetsk region uh, until fifteenth of September, so it means just in a couple of weeks, less than two in less than two weeks, which seems to be uh, an extremely difficult task for Russian army. And now, uh, even uh, even even if they are weak in the south, they are trying to counterattack in Donbass. And what we receive as information here is that they attack all the time. In Avdivka, around Avdivka, in Bakhmut, in all these localities, they already tried to, to to attack many times before, but they are retrying to do that even if they they are unable to occupy these uh, cities and villages. You're listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine by UkraineWorld.org. Uh, my name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. My co-host is Tetyana Harkova. This is our weekly digest. And we will now talk about Russian armament. Uh, with which arms, which weapons Russians are having to bombard Ukraine and uh, which of them are probably running out of stock. So we recently published a kind of analysis made by, in our conversation with Petro Chernik, who, who is a mil- Ukrainian military expert, and uh, 
we try to analyze, he tried actually to analyze the, the Russian weapons capacity. Uh, so a few quotes from, from this interview, which you can <coughs> read on our website, ukraineworld.org. As of now, Russia has used its entire range of weapons. And for example, uh, among these missile, among these weapons are missile systems as uh, uh, the so-called Kinjal, the daggers, or the so-called Kalibr, H-101, and of course the Iskander, which are, uh, which are high-precision missiles, and which are reaching the critical point. This is something that we, uh, we have been talking about recently, that Russians are increasingly less, less a number of high-precision missiles. They started using the so-called S-300 anti-aircraft missiles, and, and as we told our listeners, uh, they changed the tactics and, and started using this S-300 anti-aircraft missile as actually a missile against the land, land targets. And uh, uh, it's, it's important that Russia has up to 1,500 such missiles, so quite a lot. Uh, on February 24th, according to uh, to this expert, Mr. Chernik, according uh, on February 24th, Russia had around 8,000 missiles of different types, and up until now, it used uh, more than 3,000 missiles launched at Ukraine. Can you imagine this figure? 3,000 missiles in six months. Uh, and if we compare, we can compare it with, for example, U.S. war against uh, Saddam Hussein in, in 2003, which, of course, I mean, we understand it's very much criticized in the West, in the America, and rightly so. Uh, uh, but at that time, Americans used 802 precision-guided munitions and 109 Tomahawk missiles fired at mil military targets. Right, so comparing to this Russian uh, assault with three thousand missiles already used, and uh, if these figures are accurate, then they still have five thousand missiles to use. So of they course. still have more than they already use. So it means that the war, uh, at the same in the same intensity, they will last for many months. Still for many. Yes, months. but probably uh, probably this estimation that they will run out of these missiles by the end of the year or maybe a little bit later. So it also means that they used almost half of what they they had. And did they achieve something incredible? I mean, of course, they, they are killing Ukrainian civilians and... and, and but uh, That's the problem, in fact, with this war because we, we all understand that they started the war thinking that they will win quickly. Maybe in, in the beginning they thought they will be in three days. Maybe later they they they, they decided to concentrate their efforts in Donbass, stating that maybe will be in, in in a couple of months. They were not imagining such a war which will last months and months. And uh, clearly enough, they will run out of their resources. Even if it doesn't happen uh, by the end of December, it will happen maybe in, during the next summer. So this is inevitable in a way. And what is important is that Russia, uh, we should make Russia um, unable to produce another weapons, another missiles. And sanctions are 
designed to do so. So we do hope that it, it will work out this way, that Russia will be unable to reproduce its uh, military arsenal. This is extremely important. So at least we uh, we lasted for more than six months. We are still ready to uh, to, to continue our resistance for many months. But uh, yes, but uh, the, the most importantly is to cut Russia from its possibility to to, re, to renew its arsenal. Yes, and we should also keep in mind that, well, <clears throat> the majority of stocks Russia has relied upon were the Soviet stocks, as Ukrainians as well. But the Soviet stocks uh, also uh, get older. And for example, we know from our communication with our friends and relatives, who uh, your 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 cousin is working in this field, right, in the in the field of explosives, let's say, in the Ukrainian emergency service, and he explained to us that look, uh, up until mo up, um, up until certain moment, a shell or a bomb just expires, so it should be it should be uh, destroyed, uh, otherwise it will be. It can it can explode by itself, or it cannot. It will not be able to um, to uh, to be used on the battlefield. And there are lots of this uh, in in Russia. It seems. So the question is whether Russia uh, is able to produce new ammunition, new new weapons. Uh, of course, it's, it has lots of raw materials inside. Uh, but the question is whether it will need a new technology really. Uh, to produce it, and uh, whether, for example, the Chinese or the North Koreans can provide them also with the ammunition or with it with the technology. So, of course, this is this is a big question. Uh, what what is important, uh, as our expert says, uh, Russia's bombardment uh, actually caused uh, R- Russia hit. L- one of every four missile strikes, so at least uh, every four, every fourth missile but strikes was actually hitting the civilian infrastructure. Twenty-five percent. Yes, at least twenty-five percent. One of or one of four missile strikes, right? So, so deliberate civ- civilian, deliberate strikes against civilians. Well, deliberate or not, but they did when Russians are claiming they are. They are striking the military objects, uh, only military objects. This is, of course, not true. Another thing, another very important thing is uh, the aviation. And uh, Ukraine has had the unprecedented success in shooting down Russian modern aircraft. Um, and actually, Russia's, Russia was, was pretending he has, it as it has the very modern, very highly sophisticated, the so-called fourth-generation combat aviation, which is probably not true because Ukrainians were extremely successful uh, against it. And Ukraine has destroyed more than 200 Russian warplanes out of 1,300. So it's already, what, how much is it? Is 20%? Uh, well, a, a bit less maybe than 20%, right? Uh, a bit less maybe 16% or something, 
which is also important because Russians were saying, okay, Ukraine doesn't have aviation, we destroyed all Ukrainian aviation. Yeah, they, they told they destroyed all Ukrainian aviation during the first days, which is obviously not true. So there are a lot of jokes about that because how how come Ukrainians still use uh, uh, um, aviation if it was destroyed uh, during the first three, four, five days of this war? So this is, uh, and what we see uh, also in the south right now that uh, in in official information coming from the Ukrainian side, there are always mentions of Ukrainian aviation was used. They uh, there were I don't know, remember twenty something strikes during this day. So Ukrainian aviation is quite active now in the south. Another thing is artillery, of course, and uh, Russia has the largest barrel artillery stock in the world. It has four thousand five hundred units. And out of these 4,500, 1,000, according to our estimations, was destroyed. So more than 20%. Uh, also, we can ask a question, what is, is, what is, of what is left? Is it really the, 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 the best weapons or maybe the worst ones? And maybe Russians just uh, sent the best weapons in the early stages of the war and maybe it has been already destroyed. But as uh, as Mr. Chernyak says, our expert, is that we should not underestimate uh, Russia and believe uh, it is exhausted because Russia has the raw materials to make shells and has the factories to make them. So, yeah, this sanction regime, this should be really very good specialists, specialists working on this because you can impose sanctions and then it will not cover this important this important production. Right. But in a way, what we see that demilitarization Putin announced in the 24th of February, it's it's uh, it's about Russia. So this is a process of demilitarization of Russia on its way about. So roughly 20% of the their resources is destructed now. But still the big question is uh, how, uh, if they will be able to to compensate with something else, to produce, to import to to form alliances with other countries, with China, with Korea, whatever. So this is a big question. So we continue our conversation on our weekly digest of Explaining Ukraine podcast. And uh, one of the important uh, events was the visit of the uh, experts of the delegation of the International Atomic Energy Agency to the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. And we understand that Russians have occupied this power plant, which is the biggest in Europe, and are threatening with acts of nuclear terrorism and was sending, Russian officials were sending hints uh, to the to the western world that uh, radiation doesn't have borders so this was a clear threat that they can do something with the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant and this would be a reaction to uh, the discussion right now in Europe about the um, kind of tightening the visa regime for the Russians so what happened during this visit 
Yeah, this visit was uh, very important for Ukraine and for, for the whole planet, I would say. What we know, so we know that there was an arrangement between President Zelensky and the leader of this mission, Mr. Grossi, that this mission will be accompanied by journalists, uh, by international journalists and by Ukrainian journalists, because it was important to see, not only to, to estimate by, by this mission, but also to see for journalists, for public opinion, what's going on. But uh, And journalists... Uh, they left with the delegation, so they were able to reach the blog posts. But unfortunately, they were not allowed to follow the mission. And uh, Zelensky, if I'm not mistaken, was a little bit upset by 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 Grossi as well, because Grossi didn't insist enough uh, for journalists to 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 accompany accompany the mission. So they went to the stations. They spent there a couple of hours, two hours, maybe a little bit more than that. And then the majority of the delegation, I mean Grossi and the company, they left the station and they left. Uh, they there were only two people uh, who are still in the station. Uh, and they will be monitoring the situation later. So and Grossi uh, are already uh, preparing a report. Uh, we are very attentive. We will be very attentive to this report. We are eager to see what they will state in their report. Uh, because uh, what was important for Ukraine in this situation with this mission, it, uh, it it's demilitarization. It was uh, an idea to to make Russians leave the station. But at that moment, we don't see anything of the kind. We see that just they will be monitoring, but they don't don't create any kind of pressure on Russians to leave the station. And this is simply unacceptable, unacceptable for Ukraine. So imagine, imagine in your country, there is a, a dangerous place, an atomic station, which is captured by terrorists. And then... Uh, instead of doing something about that, you are sending their kind of independent mission and they are describing what is going on and that's it. So without doing nothing serious about that. So it means that it is absurd. Just imagine. And this atomic station, the biggest in Europe, it's extremely dangerous uh, to keep their, uh, all the warfare which Russia keeps there. They are shelling these stations. They're also shelling... Um, places uh, close to the station. So this is unacceptable. And now everything is to be done to make Russians um, withdraw their military warfare and their soldiers from this place. Yeah, we will uh, follow attentively what this agency will be saying, will be doing. But you're right that there is a danger that uh, this will be another show of basically the weakness of let's say let's put it in this way uh, let's use this word the weakness of the international organizations but let's hope for the better this was a podcast explaining ukraine by ukraineworld.org this was our weekly digest uh, we try to analyze at least from the information that we have what is going on right now on the front line and what is what are other topics in and around Ukraine right now. My name is Volodymyr Yermolnko, I'm Ukrainian philosopher and journalist. And my co-host is Tetyana Harkova, who is in charge of international outreach at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the oldest and biggest Ukrainian media NGOs.
follow us on Google uh, Podcast, Apple Podcast, SoundCloud, YouTube, uh, Facebook, Twitter, wherever else. And uh, you can also support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We spend the majority of your support to help people affected by this war and to help Ukrainian defenders. Patreon.com slash Ukraine World. Stay with us and stay with Ukraine.